you for leading us in that. And uh, I just want to, <clears throat> I want to tell you, I'm just uh, so glad to be here. I come kind of with a bittersweet feel today on my heart, knowing that this is the last attribute that we're going to be covering on the series of the attributes of God. And uh, if you're new here today or visiting, we want to welcome you. I hope you feel at home at our church. And I just want to let you know we've been going through a series on the attributes of God <clears throat> where we've taken a week to look at each attribute, and we have seen many. Uh, we began long ago with uh, studying God's eternality and spirituality. We, we talked about his sovereignty and his holiness and the, the three omnis, you remember, omnipotence, om, omnipresence, and omniscience, and <clears throat> the immutability of God. And we spent no small amount of time on his goodness and his love and his mercy and his grace and his faithfulness and his patience and all of those. And we, we probably left one or two out that maybe you'll need to chase down in your own personal study. Or maybe I'll have an opportunity to slip it in at another time. But I, I hope that you've had a vision of God enlarged in your mind as a result of this. Um, so if you are visiting today, please understand that today's topic is going to be on the justice of God. Now, that's one attribute we haven't talked about yet, but we need to. It would be an incomplete view of God without, first, or without finally touching on his justice. But it would also be an incomplete view of God if this were the only attribute that you heard in this series. So I believe these are online. I believe you can go chase them down later. So each attribute, as we've been arguing this whole time, connects and is related to each other attribute. And so you might, as we talk about the justice of God and, and an extension of that, the wrath of God today, which we're going to be talking about, uh, make sure you don't leave here with a limping view of God or an incomplete or a skewed view of God as if this were his only attribute. It is not. But uh, I commend you all for being part of this series, and uh, I so appreciate your attentiveness and, and uh, stick, your stick-to-itiveness. Uh, it's, it's work. Doing biblical theology takes work. It's not for the weak, and it, it, it takes um, a mental commitment, and so I appreciate uh, being part of uh, the worship in this way. I want to say that um, next week, I want you to look forward to next week because I'm going to try something a little bit new, <clears throat> and I'm going to do a Q&A. And I'd like you to come, and I'd like, uh, I'm sure you've had questions along the lines about different um, topics that we've covered or different applications of how they are to be applied in our life. And <clears throat> I just want to have a little bit of family time and hear from you maybe about how the series has impacted you or some insights that you've gained from this uh, that you can share with your brothers and sisters in Christ and, and uh, fire away a, <clears throat> a question or two at me. Um, and uh, so be thinking about that and come back next week and we'll, we'll be able to do that. Um, and um, I think what I'd like to do right now is let's make our way to the book of Nahum. Nahum is a prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, you can find him, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, if you can yeah, he's in one of the minor prophets, not because uh, he's minor in any way, just uh, that's a name that is applied to the smaller. Not because he's shorter or small, but smaller in length, shorter in length, uh, minor prophets, as opposed to the major prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, big chunk of material there. So Jonah, Micah, Nahum, chapter 1. And I'm going to read this text, and I think it's a good text to kind of pray through as well as we, we just orient our, our time together here. 
The prophet writes the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful or the possessor of wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry he dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we have come some distance learning of who you are and, and what your character is like. And today we come to our final attribute in our study as we look at the fearsome and awesome attribute of your justice and of your righteousness and as its application, your vengeance upon your adversaries. Father, you have revealed yourself in this way as a jealous God, avenging Lord, you have reviewed, revealed yourself as a God of wrath. And this is not something that we would build and construct in one of our own gods, Lord, but this is how you display yourself. And that while you love your children, and that you give grace to your own children, you pursue your enemies to the end. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself as being slow to anger. Thank you for being patient with us as we were wanderers, as we defied your law, but you have brought us to yourself in Christ. And though the whirlwind and the storm accomplishes your mighty will, Lord, we know that we are protected in you. Lord, thank you that you have power over the elements. Thank you that we are not left to mother nature for the disasters and the troubles of this land, Lord, but they are all at your beck and call. Father, as we consider your wrath today, we admit that we are not compassionate enough about this topic. And Lord, we would ask that you would even today bring people to mind who are on the path right now of receiving your wrath. And Lord, that it will be poured out like a flood. And so for this reason, we speak, we persuade men, we teach on your patience and your goodness, for you are good. And you have declared yourself as a stronghold for those who trust in you, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And this day, we as your children, we as believers, we who know the Lord Jesus, we 
rejoice in that great stronghold you've provided, an ever-present help in trouble. And Lord, as we consider the topic, just give us hearts for the lost today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, <clears throat> another thing I want to mention here about these attributes before I begin is that we always must remember the attributes in relation to all other attributes. And this is, a, this is especially the case this morning with justice. We have talked about the mercy of God, and we even define that as mercy is not getting what we do deserve, right? We, we deserve hell. We deserve judgment. Mercy holds that off, getting what we, not getting what we do deserve. Instead, in its place, we get grace, that is, getting what we don't deserve. We have all been the recipients, if we know the Lord Jesus, of his grace. And that is getting things, good things, that we really don't deserve. And today, we are going to talk about justice, which is neither grace nor mercy. Justice is getting exactly what you do deserve. And in a day where everybody is crying out for justice and social justice and legal justice. We have said, while we would never purport or, or advance a world of injustice, we must be very, very careful with our understanding of what justice actually is. It is getting exactly what you do deserve, and that could work for you or against you. All of these attributes, including the attribute of justice, are, are to be taken in light of one another, and most recently, in light of the, the attribute of patience. You recall last week we studied the attribute of patience, that God is slow to act. And we're going to be seeing a connection to that today, but this today's message is on justice and its application. Its application of righting wrongs, of, of the ex execution of that which is upright and proper and fair and just in the treatment of sinners. We need to know that by God's nature, he is just. And whatever God does is just. So if God does it, it is just. And we dare not downplay this element. And it is being downplayed in our day. True justice. Justice needs no modifier. Justice needs no precedent. Justice is justice. But people will downplay the justice of God. They will downplay the wrath of God and his vengeance upon sinners. And I think... For years, we have seen this downplay, utter attack in some cases, in the form of purgatory. Purgatory, which is an assault against God's justice, and it's an assault against his eternal justice. Another false doctrine known as annihilationism attacks the justice of God. Annihilationism, believing that when sinners are destroyed, or when sinners are cast into hell, they are destroyed, they are burned up, they are consumed, and they exist no more. That is a doctrine. We believe in the eternal conscious continuance of those in hell. And some, like modern false teacher Rob Bell, will, will do a flat-out denial of the doctrine of hell. He'll just say hell doesn't exist. He'll say that hell actually violates the justice of God. Is that the case? We'll take a look at that today. But in any case, there is a downplaying of the justice of God in our day. J.I. Packer writes in his book, Knowing God, that the modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play this subject down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, he says not all do, say very little about it. Perhaps they do not think much about it. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself 
to the gods of greed and pride and sex and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness but says virtually nothing about his judgment. How often during the past year did you hear, or if you're a minister, did you preach a sermon on the wrath of God? How long is it since a Christian spoke straight on this subject on radio or on television? And, he says, if a man did so, how long would it be before he would be asked to speak again? The fact that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians by and large have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. And he's right. He's right. Most gospel presentations start with, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But apart from Christ, this is not a wonderful plan. It's a horrific plan for your future apart from God. It is a plan of executing justice upon you. And really, there's only two places justice can land. One of them is upon you. The other one, hang tight for the rest of the sermon here. What are we talking about when we talk about this aspect of God's justice? Well, if you have a bulletin there, provided a little outline for you, we're going to look at defining this aspect of God's justice. And in particular, as it's manifested in wrath. Now, I want to tell you, uh, I want to talk about a couple of Old Testament terms here. And one of them is the term in your notes, anaf. It, it is uh, connected to last week's term, erek af, uh, that A-P-H and anaf, A-P-H. Last week, we talked about the patience of God being long-faced, right? Standing uh, long in the same position here. It, um, anaf, on the other hand, in the Old Testament, it also has to do with the face. It's translated face sometimes, but it, it also means nose or nostril. And it means to snort. And it's, uh, it's an anger snort here. It's a concrete expression of anger. It's much like uh, el toro, right? When, you, when the, um, the matador flashes the red cape and the toro just drives him nuts and he charges in and he misses and he's just snorting and he's turning around. That's this word, enough. It's it's a snorting nose. Kara and yakam are synonyms here similarly, but these, these words have an idea of heat behind them. And it's often translated kindle. Psalm 106, 40 says, the anger of the Lord kindled against the people of Israel. Exodus 32 talks about the burning anger of God. And so this has the idea of heat. And we know this because when we are angry, especially when we're justifiably angry, we get hot, right? We say, oh, that man got hot under the collar when that, when that happened or when you said that. And we sometimes will turn red, and that's the heat burning and kindling within us. So we understand this. We are made in God's image, so why would he not be able to have these emotions as well? In the New Testament, we have the word thumas, which means to rush along fiercely or to breathe out fiercely or to breathe in a heat of rage. And then the word orge, which means uh, to grow ripe in anger, or a slow building over a long period of time. And this is used in Romans 2.5, which says, because of your stubbornness, you are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. You are building it up, Paul says. So as we define this, considering these words and, and the, the message to come here, for our purposes, we're going to call the justice and the wrath of God the attribute of God by which he displays his righteous and intense hatred for sin, resulting in the temporal and the eternal punishment of the sinner. This is God's hatred for sin. You have heard it said that God loves the sinner, 
but hates the sin. And although that is certainly true, you must always understand and remember that though God loves the sinner and hates the sin, God punishes not the sin. He punishes the sinner. Am I right? He doesn't go around punishing sin. This abstract idea of lawlessness, he places responsibility directly into the lap of the sinner. And we must understand that in this context. This is God's righteous indignation we're going to be speaking about today. And this is central to his opposition to sin and evil. It's a necessary part of his moral character. And though I love justice, and though I've devoted my life to the advancement of justice, I have to tell you today that I am intimidated. I am wishing, in a sense, I didn't have to talk about this attribute of God. It is so fearsome. It is so awesome. And I've left it for the last for that reason as well. Um, and, and, and I confess that in my heart, um, I don't claim to understand it. And I confess that the lost people in my own life probably need to hear more about this reality than they do from me. And, and I fall guilty to that as well. But God is unalterably alterably opposed to evil, and he reveals himself as such. Psalm 45, 7 says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. God loves the righteous, and he hates lawlessness. And a God with no righteous indignation is a crippled God. He is a limping God. He is a wimpy God. He is a puny God if he does not have the attribute of justice. Well, with having defined that, let's, let's work through a couple of categories of justice, more than a couple here. There's six of them that I want to list for you today. These are general categories of God's wrath. There's all different kinds of wrath that we see in the Bible, and we'll just, we'll just begin to fill in some blanks here if you're taking notes here. This is helpful to you to understand some of the classifications that we see in Scripture with, with the wrath of God. The first, if you would note, is cataclysmic wrath. Cataclysmic. This is what the, from the word we get, cataclysm, disaster. Um, cataclysmic wrath is manifested often in scriptures and in everyday life in natural disaster. Fires, floods, droughts, hurricanes, disasters, earthquakes. This is cataclysmic wrath. And we already know that God is a sovereign God, and in some mysterious ways, he, he, he works through all the events of the universe, including nature. And this is a manifestation. It's a precursor. It's a, hello, McFly, wake up. <laughs> a, a, a devastating tornado, an earthquake that rips freeways apart, is child's play mind you, compared to the wrath to come, which we will see. And so these cataclysms are really statements of God's grace saying, I'm trying to point you to something. I'm trying to show you to what's ahead. And they can be horrific, but not anywhere near as horrific as what is to come. These are cataclysms designed to alert us. Uh, the Tower of Siloam, remember, that fell on the, the individuals. And everybody was making a in Luke, a uh, question to Jesus about what does this mean? And, and Jesus says, don't think that uh, they were any worse than you. And, and, and this is a reminder uh, that, that and it's really grace we see in, in the cataclysms. 
There's also the uh, category of consequential wrath. Consequential wrath, this is simply the concept of sowing and reaping. We know this to be true. Whatever a man sows, Paul says, he will also reap. And God allows sinners to reap devastating consequences as a result of their own sinful choices. And you see this every day. You see sinful choices on the part of man that appear innocuous, appear small, appear between two consenting adults, and then you see devastating consequences. Consequences in the form sometimes of epidemics and disease and injuries of those sinning against their own bodies, the scripture says. Sinners choosing a sin, and as a result, they incurred devastating consequences as a result of a simple choice. This is consequential wrath. There's a, there's a scripture in Hosea 8, 7, which says, They sow the wind, but they will reap the whirlwind. Powerful, powerful scripture. They sow the wind, oh, the harmless wind, and they're just sowing the wind, purposelessness, but they reap the whirlwind. That is to say that if you act in a certain way which appears to be rather minor in its consequence, much worse of an action can fall upon you as a result of consequential wrath. Wrath. These are severe consequences, and this also is a form of grace. There is thirdly the the wrath of abandonment. Would you write that in? Abandonment wrath. These are just all different ways in which God is displaying his justice in the earth. Abandonment wrath is simply this. You've been turned over to do whatever you want to do. Do you know that discipline and structure and guidance and leadership in your life on the part of God and on the part of man as well is is grace to you? You know, employees might feel a little bitter about being corrected by a boss, but you know what? How about the employee that's not corrected at all? How does that employee fare? How does that child fare? And that shows utter uh, being turned over and turned away by that individual. In this case, it's God. Removing all restraints, saying, oh, you want this? You want to go down this path? Be my guest. No more restraints. And, And you go down the path deeper and deeper into abandonment wrath. Deeper and deeper into sin. Sin begets sin, begets sin, begets sin. And when God lets that go, that is a form of his wrath. That is a form of of his indignation against you. And ultimately, you can go down so deep where you can't find yourself back. You you remember in Romans 1, 18, where where it uses the term, God gave them over. He gave them over to various lusts. And then he gave them over to deeper lusts. And then he finally gave them over the third time. It says it three times in that passage to where their mind was given over. And now they can't find their way back if they wanted to. They're completely lost in this abandonment. Does God do this? He does. It says that three times in Romans 1. And then in Psalm 81, 11, it says, My people did not listen to my voice. Israel did not obey me. So I gave them to the stubbornness of their hearts. That's the wrath of abandonment. That's God saying, go your own way. I'm not going to restrain you anymore. Hosea 4.17 says, Ephraim has joined himself to idols. Let him alone. Let him alone. Powerful, powerful when God says, let him alone. We don't want the wrath of abandonment. Fourthly, the, the category of God's eschatological wrath. You know this. 
Eschatology means the end times wrath, and we'll look at a little bit of that today. The Great Tribulation, wrath poured out in the final hour of human history where all hell breaks loose. Unprecedented wrath, cosmic wrath, the wrath of the Lamb, which we will see. And then the most fearsome wrath of all, fifthly, the eternal wrath of God. Eternal wrath. God exercising wrath in hell forever upon unbelievers. This is the most severe wrath because of its intensity and its duration. It will never end and it will be unleashed on Satan and his demons and unfortunately all lost sinners who don't repent and come to the Lord Jesus Christ and they will know only God's justice at that point in the eternal lake of fire, undiluted, unbearable, unstoppable. Whether you spend one day in eternal hell or a thousand days in eternal hell or a thousand years in eternal hell, you've only just begun. That is the most terrifying type of wrath, the eternal wrath, which never, ever ends. Now, there's a sixth type of wrath. I'm not going to give it to you yet. You've got to stay till the end to get number six. That is my favorite wrath, but we're going to move on to the third point of the sermon here. Am I alone in this? Am I standing up here today kind of making all this stuff up? Uh, Am I just some kind of fanatic preacher that is just fixating on the wrath of God this morning? Or do I stand in a long line of history of godly men and godly ambassadors of declaring this truth. Well, I want to show you that I don't stand alone today, and I'd like you to turn to the book of Matthew. We're just going to kind of do a little Bible study here. I don't think we'll be able to spend any length of time in any one of these passages here, but I just want to dance on the surface a little bit here of these ambassadors of God's wrath. I'm not alone as a preacher of God's wrath. You are not alone as a witness of God's wrath. And we see the beginning of this just in the New Testament with the wrath of God according to John the Baptist. You know John the Baptist, that fiery prophetic preacher, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, we learn of his uh, forerunning ministry, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, I'm the forerunner, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, make ready, make straight the paths. He says he ate locusts and wild honey. It says all of Jerusalem and Judea were going out to him in the district around the Jordan and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Confession of sin, baptism, identification with cleansing, a clarion call to repentance connected there. Verses 7 and 8, we see more here. It says when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You need to understand, these were not godly people. These were uh, pseudo-believers. These were false teachers, false believers who trusted in works righteousness for their justification by God, their own works and what they did. And they were hypocrites, and they were evil. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees, wanting this uh, step of cleansing and identification with this new era, they came for baptism. And, And it's interesting, John, that fiery prophet, he says, you brood of snakes, you... You hypocrites, basically. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he's so confrontive with them. And he says, here's the problem. Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. 
He's saying you can say what you want all day with your mouth, but unless your life manifests fruit of righteousness, you are nothing more than a snake. You are a viper. Who warned you about this? And he contrasts these Pharisees, and he calls them a, bundles of, a bundle of snakes. Bring forth the fruit. And then as we go down, he says, don't try to hide in Abraham. Don't try to hide in your tradition and in your lineage. God is able to raise from these stones children of Abraham. And that he did. In verse 10, we see more. He says, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not even fit to remove his sandal. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But he says the axe has dropped, and the only thing is hanging by a thread there. And, and one more strike, and the tree's coming down. If the tree comes down, the, the fruitless, barren tree, it'll be worth nothing more than being burned for firewood. And then... In verse 12, it says, and his, that is Christ, I'm the forerunner, he says, but who's coming, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his flesh, uh, threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Fiery, fiery preacher, isn't John the Baptist? And he says, whatever you think about Jesus, whatever you think about this one to come, it is incomplete if you don't think about Jesus with a winnowing fork in his hand, clearing the threshing floor, separating the wheat from the chaff. You say, John the Baptist speaks of snakes and axes and fire and wrath as the forerunner. You say, well, that was John the Baptist. Of course, he talked about wrath. He was a Baptist. Sorry, that one burns. <laughs> I can say that because I'm basically a Baptist. I grew up in a lot of Baptist churches, and my friends who are not Baptists, they always say, well, you're a Baptist. And I'm, I've never claimed ba being a Baptist, but I always like to make that joke. But anyway, you say, that was John the Baptist. I want to hear from Jesus himself. Because Jesus, isn't he all about love? And isn't he all about just kind of putting his arms around everybody? Jesus couldn't possibly have the same view, could he? Or could he? Did you know that Jesus made more references to hell and judgment, when you just count them up and you put them in a ledger, he made more references to hell and judgment than he did heaven and divine love combined. He, if you ask, well, what did Jesus teach? Almost everybody would say, well, he, he taught about love. And he taught about heaven, right? And he did but he taught more about hell and judgment. But we kind of just gloss through those, and we're not going to do that this morning. Matthew alone here, this, just this book, has 30 distinct references to the wrath of God in it from the mouth of Jesus. Now, any guesses how many chapters are in Matthew? 28. And so here we see this showing up, on average at least, once every chapter. Now, we see this beginning in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, if you would turn there, where Jesus announces early on in his ministry that I'm going to set things straight here. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law, verse 17, or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Heaven and earth will pass away before I'll, the smallest uh, letter or stroke will pass away from this law. And, 
and he says, uh, he says a very important point here. And he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. This was a, a, an explosion that Jesus dropped. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the thing going. They were righteousness as far as works righteousness, human righteousness. And Jesus comes onto the scene and says, yeah, you're going to have to do better than them. And they promised themselves the kingdom. That's how righteous they were. They were good to go. Works righteousness. And Jesus says, you're going to have to do better than the scribes and Pharisees. And, and it was an explosion upon them. But here, here's, here's why it was. Look at verse 21. And immediately after that, he says, you have heard it said that the ancients were, and that, that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Tried guilty just because you're angry. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, this is a term of derision, it means you useless person, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus says, take your fellow man seriously. He's made in my image. And you even call him a name, and you're guilty of fiery hell. And then he goes on, uh, he goes on in verse um, 27. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. He talks about if you're Right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. It's better to, uh, that one of your parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell, verse 29. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It's better that one of your parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. This is really interesting teaching that Jesus is applying the, the law of God with. He's basically saying, you don't have to pull the trigger, my friend. You don't have to stab the knife in. You can be unjustifiably angry at your brother. Call him a moron. That's the word there, thou fool. It just means it's moroni. And, and it just means moron. And, and you're, you're in danger of hell. And, and you don't have to go to bed. You don't have to engage in the act. You, you, look, but don't touch, right? J Jesus says wrong. That places you within the danger of hell a real place of torment. And he calls for radical amputation. Now, he doesn't want us chopping off our hands and gouging out our eyes. He's saying, deal seriously with sin. B take it seriously. It's putting people in hell. And this is Jesus' message. You say, well, I don't like that. Tell me something nice about Jesus. Tell me a story. Tell me a parable, right? Jesus was a great teacher, wasn't he? He taught a lot of parables, taught a lot of stories. Well, let's look at a couple of his stories. Let's go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is a parable of the wheat and the tares. Just after the sower is explained that he sows seed on all different types of soil, and only one soil produces fruit. But the weeds and the tares come in, and they, they blend and you have to deal with these. Any gardeners out there? My wife's doing gardening right now, and we see the real stuff we want, and it's always a fight against the stuff that we don't, and the world is the same way. 
Matthew 13, 36, he left the multitudes and went into the house and he said to his disciples, or his disciples said to him, explain the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world. And for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and all those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But I love verse 43. Remember our sixth blank. We haven't filled that in yet. The righteous, not the self-righteous, not the works righteous, the truly righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus is saying, if you've got an ear, open it up. You need to hear the wrath of God. You need to hear about this. You say, I don't like that parable. Okay, well, let's try the parable of the dragnet. Verse 47, just look down, the dragnet. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet, cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. They sat down, gathered the good fish into containers, and the bad fish they threw away. Kids, is there a more simple story than this? You, want, you go fishing, you have a big net, you pour everything out, and you see good fish, and you see bad fish. Fish you can eat and useful for food, and fish that is, just needs to be thrown out. That's simple. Jesus says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them in the furnace of fire. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth and indicating conscious suffering to the point where you're weeping and gnashing your teeth to the point where you are in misery. These are some parables of Jesus. There's more. Jesus' general teaching, Matthew 18, you know this. This is when the little children were coming to Jesus. They wanted to hear from him. They wanted to listen to him. The little kids wanted to be near Jesus. And the adult hypocrites are saying, get, get out of here. Who would do that? Who would ever push children away from an opportunity to hear truth? And yet they do, these Pharisees, and they push the children away. And, and Jesus says, no, bring them to me. Bring them to me. They're, such as theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, he basically saying, you're a stumbling block to these children. You're keeping them from the kingdom. And he says, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. And stumbling blocks are inevitable, but woe to him who through whom the hum, uh, stumbling block comes. And again, the same language about cutting off your foot, better to be crippled, gouging out your eye in front of these little ones. And then he says, see to it that you do not despise these little ones. Yeah, Jesus was a storyteller, Stor told horrific stories about cu cutting off your arms to kids. <laughs> Don't come back with no arms, kids. That's not the point. <laughs> but um, this is an important passage here because um, he says, uh, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble, it'd be better to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and that he'd be drowned in the depths of the sea. How graphic. 
Jesus telling stories about huge millstones and drownings and brutal deaths and hacking off arms and plucking out eyes in the presence of children even. Or Matthew 25, 41. You can just jot that down. We won't take the time, but it, it talks about how it is conscious. It is eternal. The sheep and the goats. Sheep to eternal bliss. Goats to eternal fire, which has been prepared for his devil and the angels. That's our Lord's teaching. And there's so much more. I just picked out a few in Matthew. But when you're reading the New Testament, read that in mind as you, as you see the work of our Lord. God's wrath has been heralded by John the Baptist and by Jesus our Lord. Thirdly, let me just briefly be uh, wrath of God according to Paul the Apostle. Paul was a, a brilliant, brilliant herald of the wrath of God, and we, we made reference of that in Romans 1. You remember God giving them over. The wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven. And he talks in Romans 2 about judging your brother especially when you judge your brother, but then you go out the back door and you do the same thing. And he says, we know the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice these things. But do you suppose this, old man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and then you go do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience and the kindness of God which leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath at the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And he'll render to every man according to his deeds, getting exactly what they deserve. Those who by perseverance and doing good, seeking for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, but those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. And there'll be tribulation and distress, etc., etc. There's no partiality with God. This is the justice of God. Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to jot that down, Paul calls us children of wrath. Children of wrath. Formerly walking according to the course of this world, the prince of this power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. But God being rich in mercy, not giving you what you do deserve. Remember mercy? Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. Don't forget blank number six. It's coming. You got to hang in there. Wrath of God, according to the Apostle Paul. You can read about more of it in Ephesians 5, 1 through 6, more about this. But he says, we are not destined for wrath. And then there's the wrath of God according to John the Elder. Not John the Baptist, different John. John the Elder wrote the book of Revelation, also 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Let's look at some of his, though. Let's, let's go to the book of Revelation, and we'll, we'll conclude with this last point here. On the wrath of God according to John the Elder. This is fascinating. In, in Revelation 6, 12 through 17, This is the sixth seal. And it's the seal of judgment. And it talks about the sun being made black. The whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. 
sky was split apart like a scroll when it was rolled up. Sounds like a song we sing, right? Uh, what is that song? Is it be, Sky will be, it is well with my soul, right? Well, we need to also understand the context where this came from. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free, interesting, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, the sweet little lamb, the sweet little woolly, cuddly, fuzzy lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Here's a coming day where hell does break loose. And men cry out to stones for escape. Great men and small men cowering under them, rather to be crushed by rocks than to face the wrath of the Lamb. In Revelation 14, verse 10, moving right along, the beast and those who worship the beasts and receive the mark on their forehead, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. You want to drink, my friend? Drink this. The wrath mixed in full strength, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. There's a holiness to the execution of this wrath, and holy angels witness it. And it is done by the order of the presence of the Lamb, forced to drink this undiluted cup of vengeance, potent and strong. It's interesting, Revelation um, 16, um, 19, I believe. Sixteen nineteen. the great city was split in, into three parts, Babylon, the great city, fell, and it was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And look at this, verse 21, huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each. Our car seems to never be able to miss hail in the, in the Black Hills area. It's been hailed out so many times, we don't even bother fixing it anymore. But the biggest I've seen, and they're very intimidating, is, you know, a golf ball size or soft, or not softball, I've never had that, but uh, tennis ball size maybe. But here, I don't know, what size would this be? A hundred pounds. What is that big that we know of? Crashing down upon men as hailstones upon them. And you think that would maybe get them to say, we, we need help here, right? But they don't. Look at the rest of the verse. They blaspheme God because of the plague of hail because its plague was severely extreme. God, who perhaps even at this time could still have mercy and deliverance for them upon repentance and confession of their sin, but no, we would rather be smashed with hail. That's why sin is such insanity. It causes you not to reason right. Let's look at Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 11. This is, this is amazing. This is the return of Christ. This is beautiful yet awesome and fearsome it says and i saw heaven opened and behold a white horse 
And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And note this, in justice he judges and wages war. In righteousness he judges and wages war. You've heard of a righteous war, right? You've heard of a just war. This is really right here in this text, the just war. And his eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems meaning he has stacks of authority to pull this off, right? We talked about the authority of God, and he has a name written upon which no one knows except himself. And look at verse 13. He is clothed with a robe that is, the Greek word is, baptized in blood. Graphic language. Baptized in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen and white and clean, they are with him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God the Almighty. Folks, if this does not wake us up to the situation that we are in and that the lost are in and that our lost loved ones and friends are in, I don't know what does. I mean, do you think there's just some raving fanatic here? I mean, this, this is the word of God. And this is our Lord Jesus Christ with saints in pure white robes coming to witness this devastation. And on his robe he has, and on his thigh, the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is your God. Behold your God. This is who we worship. This is who we love and adore, who has loved and adored us. And then I have to just show you one last one, Revelation 20. I would love to just preach on these one days, but I mean, it's so intense here. You say, Eli, come on, we were going to have a potluck today, right? You're kind of ruining the mood. (laughs) Hang on, blank number six, hang on. But the wrath of God seen in the great white throne judgment. It says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw, look at this, verse 12, the dead. The great and the small standing before the throne. And oh, here it is. Here's what it's all based on, folks. The books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, right? Blank number six, it's coming. But these two books were opened. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Do you know that every deed of every human being ever lived is recorded in one of two books, every name? And here, this book says the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 13, and the sea, uh, the word here is belched up the dead. All of those who buried at sea, died at sea. Ashes sprinkled in the sea. The sea barfed up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades barfed up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'll never forget, there's a picture going around. I bet you could find it on the internet. When I was a young boy, there was a picture of this lake of fire. 
And it's, it's a profound, an artist did an amazing job with this. And it's these people swimming and engulfed in this lake of fire. And then off in the distance is heaven, glorious heaven of, of bliss and the children of God enjoying precious treasure of being with Christ in heaven. And then there's the separated lake of fire. And, and it, just, it just impressed me as a, as a young child. I didn't even have it all together or figure it out, but I knew I didn't want to go there. I knew that that was the place to be. But this imagery here, surrounded by fire, swimming in fire, drowning in fire. And then it's interesting. This is what I was looking for. Revelation 16, 6, I believe it is, verse 5 maybe. It says, and they deserved it. They deserved it. This is powerful. This is powerful because you know we can say, yeah, they deserve it. But you know what, my friend? You deserve it. I deserve it. We all deserve it. This is justice. This is why we need to be so cautious not to cry too loudly for justice because that is what we deserve according to our deeds. According to our deeds. And this is why Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even get your toenail into the kingdom of heaven. So what is the difference? How, does, how do I get my deeds good enough? How do I have righteousness that's higher than the religious teachers of the land who teach righteousness? How do I do it? Blank number six, go back. Blank number six, finally we get something positive today. You say, Eli, number six, not only is there cataclysmic wrath, consequential wrath, abandonment, eschatological, eternal wrath, but there, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, is redemptive wrath. It is redemptive wrath. It is the most important kind of wrath, the most critical kind of wrath. The wrath of God poured out on Christ on the cross as he died and he gave his sinless, perfect righteousness for you and for me. That is righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That is the righteousness that places your name in the Lamb's book of life. Who cares about the deeds of the flesh, right? I don't want those brought up. And it will never be brought up if your name is in the Lamb's book of life. You will not be part of those who are judged by their deeds. This is why I'm telling you works-based religion is the most craziest human-made idea on the planet. Because you can never be good enough. You'll never be righteous enough. And all you're doing is adding to the books, adding line upon line of your unrighteous deeds, your, your righteousness, which Isaiah calls filthy rags. They're filthy because God has provided a redemptive path for salvation. And God has vented his full and righteous fury on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why the cross is so absolutely central and important to us. This is why Jesus sweat bloods before on the night of the cross, sweat drops of blood rather. And he prayed to his father, Father, if it be some way, let this cup pass. Was he merely afraid of crucifixion? Well, I think in his humanity, he was. Who wants to be crucified? But you know what? There were many people crucified that day or in that era. And there were many people that would be crucified afterwards. It wasn't the human fear of the manner of death. It was the divine side of the Lord Jesus who knew that uh, my father is separating from me. 
my, my father is bringing down all of the cataclysms of all of the cataclysms that earth could possibly provide and he's bringing them down upon me. All of the consequences of every single person's bad decision, yours and mine, bore upon the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the sowing and reaping upon Jesus. All of the abandonment wrath where the Father turns his head. This is why Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm forsaken here. You've left me. You've abandoned me. And the the eschatological wrath of the end times coming down upon him and the eternal wrath. Why? Because Jesus was eternal and God is eternal. Jesus is eternal. And two eternal beings, one displaying wrath upon another and experiencing eternal wrath of God. This is why redemptive wrath is such wonderful and glorious, glorious wrath. This is the wrath of grace, if you will. This is the justice of God displayed on the cross. Next week, we're going to look at how the cross, you'll be amazed to see this. We're going to weave through this before our Q&A. We're going we're to show you how each and every one of these attributes that we talked about is displayed in the cross. I'm going to I'm going to challenge you to find those. Uh, maybe think about that as homework this week. We'll talk about it next week. I'll give you a little handout that will help you with that. But this is redemptive wrath. Isaiah 53, 5, By his stripes we are healed. He has, called the in, he has caused the iniquity of us all to be placed upon him. And it is a righteousness not of our own, the Apostle Paul says in, in the book of Philippians. I just want to rejoice with you today if you know the wrath bearer of this redemptive wrath in first thessalonians 1 verse 8 it says the word of the lord god has sounded forth from you not only in macedonia and achaia but in every place your faith towards god has gone forth that we have no need to say anything for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turn to god from idols to serve a living and true god and to wait for his son from heaven who has raised who is raised from the dead that is Jesus here it is who delivers us from the wrath to come that is how we avoid wrath it is through Jesus and in 1 Thessalonians 5 1 through 11 it talks about the same thing these people on the one hand who say oh peace and peace but destruction is upon them it will come upon them like a thief in the night so don't sleep as others, Paul says. Be sober. Those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. We are of the day. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. Here it is. For God has not destined us for wrath. This is a lot of wrath today, but guess what? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will know none of this. God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through the lord jesus christ who died for us that whether we are awake or sleep we may live together with him therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing oh beloved we have such a tremendous tremendous hope and this back to nahum one is what he says here in the midst of a whole chapter on wrath the lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who take refuge in him. I pray today that you know none other than the Lord Jesus Christ 
as your hope, as your Savior, as your sin bearer. Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon this wonderful, wonderful congregation, Lord. Thank you for their attentive hearts and spirits, Lord. Thank you that this is a body of believers that you've called out to yourself and you have shielded them from the wrath to come. Lord, may our hearts weep for the lost. May our hearts um, cry out in prayer for those who don't know this, Lord, and, and may we have no regrets when we have discharged our duty when it comes to this attribute of you, our, our great God. Father, this is why you invented missionaries, and this is why you invent pastors and teachers and evangelists who go share their faith. And Father, this is why we rejoice in you this day. Lord, as we take a moment here uh, after singing to hear about one of our own uh, missionaries who is trying to rescue people from the wrath to come, Lord, may we be reminded, may we do all that we can do to help and support these very important endeavors, Lord. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. We pray your blessing upon the food that we will enjoy soon, and may everybody feel welcome and um, just a wonderful time of fellowship, and we pray this in the name of of the Lord Jesus, our wrath bearer. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would uh, mind standing.